Welcome to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast, which after today will now and forever be dubbed the Pseudoscientific Speechy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CSP podcast. If this is the first time you've listened to the show, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Today, I'm welcoming a colleague of mine, Maria Welch, to talk about the rapid prompting method. Maria is a speech pathologist who has been using the rapid prompting method, RPM, for over two years now and shares her thoughts and insights about the method and, more importantly, about the many differences in the way autistic individuals experience the world. This has got to be the sixth time that I've tried doing this introduction, as you can imagine how difficult this topic uh, is to cover. So before getting into my conversation with Maria, I wanted to invite uh, the listeners, those familiar with the subject of RPM, to take a look at a video on YouTube. You'll see it referenced in the show notes uh, within the podcast player. and. That video in question is one of the world's most famous students of RPM, Rapid Prompting Method. His name is Ido Kedar. And in this video, Ido is answering a series of questions using an iPad text-to-speech app. He's sitting at a table with someone, I think it's his mother, and there are no letter boards, and no one is touching his arm. The video clocks in right around three and a half minutes. Now, if you're watching this video carefully, and I understand that camera lenses have the ability to obscure or alter reality somewhat, you will see what appears to be Ido communicating his thoughts independently. But go into the comments section of this YouTube video and check out the paragraph that starts as follows. Here's the quote. How I would love to believe that this boy is actually doing the communicating. The trouble is that at no point in time does this video actually show him doing so without the quote-unquote aid of the woman next to him. If you pay very close attention, you will see her hand near his elbow when the camera pans to the screen and supposedly shows him typing. This is quote-unquote facilitated communication and is a total fraud. If Ido is actually communicating, show him doing so without, spelled in all caps, without anyone sitting next to him to move his arm or hand to the correct position. End quote. There's more, but that's the gist of it. As of July 2019, there is no evidence to suggest RPM is an effective therapy approach, right? It's snake oil. Pseudoscience. It's right up there with homeopathy. RPM is downright dangerous. It has the potential to harm children, robbing them of any opportunity to truly communicate using methods that we know are vetted by research. It should never be considered. Period. End of story. Okay, so now that I got that out of my system, I'm going to make a bold prediction. Sometime over the next 20 years, maybe longer, those statements I just made will be revised. How much so is anyone's guess. 
Anyone who knows me professionally knows that I've been very interested in RPM since finishing episode 34, Benjamin's RPM journey. So it would stand that eventually I'd do another episode on the topic. But before I go into this episode, I need to make a number of things abundantly clear. First, I am not endorsing RPM. Even as my tone in this conversation shows me to be quite sympathetic to it. I believe, as you will soon hear, that this method can be a valid therapy for some number of students. Number two. Though it's possible that some number of RPM users' messages are not authentic, I am not going to sit here and do what so many in our field seem to love engaging in, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Trust me, I know there are no evidence-based papers suggesting that RPM belongs in our arsenal of interventions, but that doesn't mean the conversation needs to end there. 3. Believe it or not, I actually agree somewhat with the ASHA RPM position statement from 2018, which notes, it is the position of the American Speech-Language Hearing Association, ASHA, that the use of RPM, Rapid Prompting Method, is not recommended because of prompt dependency and the lack of scientific validity. For me, though, the words not recommended should not be confused with never used. In other words, right now, in 2019, I wouldn't recommend RPM off the bat for every non-speaking individual in the spectrum. But then again, I would never speak in absolutes, as in, I can never see a situation in which one would want to use RPM. This leads me to my next point. 4. If you want to know the truth, yes, I do believe many users of RPM are speaking their thoughts, and not anyone else's. I've watched many videos of users using their letterboards, with partners holding said letterboards, and other videos of partners holding nothing. I don't doubt for a second that Benjamin's communication, the subject of my previous podcast, is anything but authentic. And yes, I know about the previous studies on FC in the 90s debunking. I get that. And I get that I can be fooled by merely watching a video and not seeing what's going on behind the scenes. But that's the rub. Show me what's happening behind the scenes. Show me the subtle movements. Show me the eye glances. Show me what I'm not seeing. Please, somebody. Because until you convince me, I mean, at the end of the day, when someone is typing on their keyboard, and the only foul you can give is an adult just sitting next to them, I mean, how do you make sense of that? Okay, on to my guest. I've known Maria Welch for at least 11 years. She is a speech-language pathologist who is in private practice. We met, I think, around 2007 when we were working with the same toddler. So fast forward to 2018, I spoke with her by phone to talk about a potential new private client that I would be taking on with whom she was also working with. And during that conversation, she asked me, have you ever heard about RPM? Of course, I was like, yes. When she told me that she had taken the RPM introductory course in Austin, Texas, I knew I had another conversation that I had to record. The last thing you need to know before we jump into this interview is that this was the second time that Maria and I tried to record this episode. 
And even after the second recording, Maria went back, listened to it, and decided that she needed to re-answer certain portions because she wanted it to come out even clearer than her original responses, which I felt were pretty good. So you're going to hear some audio that sounds a little bit different, and that's just Maria sitting at her home re-recording answers to certain questions that she felt needed re-explaining. Okay, there's that. I now give you Maria Welch. I started in speech therapy many years ago, more than I'd like to admit. But at that point, I was interested in neurology and worked on neurological teams in mostly acute care hospitals and some rehab centers. So I came to working with children after working with adults and really looking at, at how brains were impacted by strokes and head injury. Um, after uh, maybe seven years of that, I moved into a physical and health impaired classroom where I worked with six nonverbal first graders and integrating them into the classroom and teaching them to use their touch and light talkers by Prinky Romick. And that was my first immersion into using AAC. Um, I stayed with uh, that co-op for five years and then did contracts on my own with various schools and clinics and hospitals until about 18 years ago I um, went out on my own and started my own practice and developed contracts um, with one, uh, usually two or three days a week with a school and then built the private part of the practice until I was completely uh, in my practice. So currently I see children anywhere from age two to 25 right now, um, mostly children that are somewhere on the spectrum that have multiple needs. I have a few that are only language and speech but because of working with prompt and also with the rapid prompting method and other AAC devices that I use, um, I've settled in this area of sensory integration in children that have sensory processing disorders. We should also say you're really big into prompt as well. I am big in prompt as well. Yeah, we can talk so. a little bit about that a little <laughs> later. You... Um, you have taken both the first course and the second course, the bridging course. Right. The bridging course was a little more recent, right? Um, it's now last it's year. been two, or two years ago, I believe. Two years ago. Possibly okay. three now. Okay. Time so goes by fast. Let's get into the meat. How did you first, <laughs> <laughs> how were you first introduced into RPM? Um, initially, it's probably been seven or eight years ago. One of my students was four. And we'd making we had made some progress, and they actually stopped speech therapy because they wanted to go try this rapid prompting method. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't really see him again for a very long time. At this, maybe two or three years after that, there was a student that I continue to see now that stuck with speech therapy as they went through the rapid prompting method mm -hmm. intervention, and I spent time with him. We were making progress. He decided to stay home and not do 
the public school, did homeschooling, and through this rapid prompting method, did his curriculum with his mom. Okay. Um, and that was my first exposure to seeing someone start at the beginning and then after a year see where they were with using a letter board. And so where was this – after one year, where was this kid? After a year, he was open spelling with his mom. With me, we, we could do a lesson and he could answer questions and he could make requests on it if I gave him choices. Mm-hmm. Um, he was up and down with o- just free open spelling with me. But with her, he was he, – but they did it every day. Yeah. Probably for six or seven hours a day off and on throughout the day. Ooh. Not for long stints of time, but maybe 10 yeah. minutes here, and then after another hour, 10 more minutes, and then yeah. it was built into his way of communicating. Okay. And now, just to just so the audience is really sure, when you first learned about RPM and you knew those early students, what was your, what was your take on it before you uh, took the course? Um, I think before these two students, I think even... When I heard about the first student who went away and you know did not stick with speech therapy as he was going through this, mm-hmm. I was very suspect and had lumped it in with facilitative communication. communication. Yeah. And I really shouldn't have opinions about facilitative communication because I've not really experienced it. But yeah. at that time, I really felt it was something that was not valid. Mm-hmm. And that it sounded like people were saying, let's just put a board in front of these students and all of a sudden they're miraculously spelling. And I knew with neurological systems like made up like the children that I worked with, that was pro- highly unlikely to happen <laughs> overnight. Right. Um, yeah. So in my mind, I heard it. I processed what they were doing. I, I, and that was it. I let it go. I moved on to my other students and yeah. didn't think a whole lot about it. Until the second student okay, so, who stayed with me so I could actually see yeah. what was happening. And what changed about that? What, what was it that you saw that started to get you thinking differently? I saw this student sharing things that were novel to the parents and to me. That they, neither of us had any idea what he was starting to share and then he would spell it on the board And I believe most of the time it was his thoughts because so often his mom would say, I had no idea he thought that, or I had no idea he felt that. Um, I saw him comprehending things that I had no clue that he was able to understand because he was unable to let me know he didn't have a consistent communication method to let me know. So his comprehension was a lot higher than I expected. Also, I learned from this, I saw him communicating in a way that I knew he had a great working memory, almost photographic auditory memory, um, and probably even better visual memory. Because I would do a lesson and it would be retained to the following week, to the following week. I didn't know that before. Um, He was able to share later, and I continue to see him now. He's able to now recognize things in his body and 
be able to describe what's going on so that his life can be easier. Um, he still has all of his stems and things that distract him, but he's able to communicate that now. That was a little harder in the beginning. But I also saw his motor patterns improving over time. So by watching him go through this with his mom, I could see how that that slow progression from a vertical board to more to a flat board how it was so important for him to do it in those small increments so that he could have success and not be discouraged so i could see the motor patterns changing too And when you first saw that open spelling, were you suspect that it was somehow manufactured? Um, did you did you just look at this? Were you just blown away the first time you saw it and said, "Oh my God, I'm wrong"? Or was it a gradual? Well, I shift? saw it evolve. Yeah. So I saw the inconsistencies. I saw yeah. him learning how to get motor control. I saw him learning how to work his body to be able to spell things consistently. It was mm-hmm. he was not consistent. Right. In month one, month two, month three, like he was still learning. Right. So he was still getting his body organized and he was getting used to being able to put his thoughts out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think I was shocked. I think it was an evolution that happened slowly over time. And I saw the different exercises that were happening so that he could get more fluent on the board. And then was extremely excited when he was able to spell with me and mm-hmm. let me know things because okay. it helped me help him then. Yeah. Now, okay. So look, I just want to uh, kind of stick to the timeline as best as I can. You, so you saw this student evolve, your thinking starts evolving. Um, at what point did you say to yourself, I need to learn more about this? Where does that come in? I had had fr- frustration for a while with particularly the children that were older and nonverbal. My frustration was that I didn't feel I was engaging them fully. So you're dealing with a lot of behaviors of avoidance and um, becoming distracted easily. So I'd been looking for a while for a program that I could build in some type of academics or activities that would be just more interesting and more age appropriate. So when I saw this student go through and the interesting things they were doing and how I could see that his comprehension was being addressed and that their thinking was stimulated and they were more engaged in the process where stems were less, behaviors were less. And after I saw that through this academics, it was a way into more communication in a broader a broader span. So it wasn't just communicating through academics. I, I, I had in my mind I wanted to learn more. I had gotten so far with learning from the parent, but it, it, I needed to go to the next level. And the thinking around this coincided with a conference that was coming up or a training program that was coming up in February of 2016. And I decided to go ahead and take it. Um, 
with the hopes that I could use the RPM in a way to facilitate more problem solving and comprehension and expand knowledge base, um, and then use prompt as a way for output so that somehow these two could work together nicely and develop a, a holistic program. So just to be clear, at this point, before you had gone to the RPM training, um, and obviously at this point you're um, you're taking you know you're, at this point your 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 thought has transitioned to he's open spelling his thoughts are valid. Um, are you working? Are you doing RPM lessons at this point, or are you just doing what you mentioned prompt? Or are you working on just or speech? I'm doing a little bit of both. My version, yeah, which we'll talk about of yeah. an RPM lesson. And, so you're doing. And I've, okay. I've learned from his mom at this point how she's doing it. Mm-hmm. I'm doing my best at at doing an RPM sure. lesson, yeah. and then as he's answering and spelling, then we go back and I prompt in what the answer was, and then he would say it. Oh, so okay. I'm also working on reasoning. So he's answering questions about this topic, mm-hmm. and he's also then put adding the verbal to it. Mm-hmm. Now, at that point, we were just working on getting consistent voicing with you know the mm-hmm. prompt hierarchy, the other prompt hierarchy yeah. of getting voicing and then putting mouth movement with it, labial facial control, so and all that other stuff that goes. A lot prompt. of it was me mapping in the words. Yeah. Um, and then he slowly was able to get more control, and okay. then he had more consistent voicing, and his um, jaw comp- jaw control improved. Can I? I'm going to throw out a just totally random question that maybe I should say for labor, but I don't want to forget asking it because you still incorporate prompts into RPM. What I've learned about RPM so far is that you want to keep sort of like a conversation going. Mm-hmm. It's very conversational. It's not me teaching a person they're just sort of soaking in like a sponge it's we want responses from them pretty constantly we're mm-hmm. going you're, it's a back and forth kind of thing does working on prompts you know once they answer a question and then say okay let's practice saying it does that disrupt the do you worry do you worry does that disrupt the flow of the lesson mm-hmm. at all and how do do different students handle that differently or have you found a workaround well this guy it worked like he okay. could stay in the flow of the conversation. Yeah. Other students, um, if it breaks their flow, if they have attentional issues, then sometimes I can't get them back. Yeah. So I might, I might write things out as we're going along some mm-hmm. facts that we discussed. And then if they're at that point of turning their voice on, we might, I'm, I will use that mm-hmm. to read. So they're practicing word recall, motor planning to, to get going through that. Yeah. And then I might ask a question about that sentence and they would point to the answer within the sentence and read it. Okay. So it becomes a verbal task with a graphic, you know, visual yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's helping them kind of pull it together. And there's other kids that I might do it completely separate and yeah. not put it together yet because it's too much for them to have to think yeah. through. And I've had some students say they, they'll they refuse to spell with me, but they'll spell with their spelling partner <laughs> because to spell with me and to work on speech at the same time, it's too it much. overloads and the anxiety level goes up 
Yeah. You know, even though they're great spelling with me. Yeah. Open, but they're more familiar with this person that's with them all the time. So if I can take that level of anxiety out of spelling with a person that I only spell with once a week or twice a week, uh, okay. then I can work on the speech. But if it's yeah two things at once, it might be too much. But they're able to say that. Right, right. Interesting. And I might say, you know, I'm going to challenge you to do both. Yeah. I'm going to challenge you for 10 minutes to spell and speak with me, and then you can go back to that. But well, yeah, maybe it's just one of those things where you really just build it up. Like, well, last week you did it for two minutes. Let's see if you can do three minutes mm-hmm. this time. Yeah, you're and, building a new muscle. You know, exactly. Right. You're building a new muscle. You're starting out slow, and you look for 5 to 10% gains every time, and mm-hmm. that's it. Do you have, I mean, in your, do you have a sort of like a um, top of the head definition that you can rattle off of what RPM even is? I'm probably going to miss some of the details, but RPM, it's a teaching paradigm Mm -hmm. that's used, that works both for minimally verbal and nonverbal students using a letter board Mm -hmm. as a way of communicating. Okay. So it's it's a hierarchical paradigm for teaching, usually academics. It, it was really devised to teach lessons and academics. It wasn't devised to, to be a communication system. Yeah, as, it's, it's, as there's AAC. an irony to that. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's not an AAC method per se. It is a teaching method that can lead to open communication. So um, we're going to have a lot of skeptics and a lot of people who are... <laughs> going to challenge on a million different levels but um i want to sort of introduce those at at points i guess so the first thing i would guess i would say is why wouldn't somebody if rpm works why couldn't you just go to a board why couldn't you just have them open spell to begin with what what's holding them up a lot of things (laughs) but i think the biggest barrier for most of the kids and and i do want to say Children on the spectrum are as varied as speaking people that yeah. are, you know, we're all on the spectrum somewhere, but the the variety is amazing. But you can't go straight to a flat board many times because of the motor apraxia that's also full body apraxia. Mm-hmm. So if you, if, if we could do it, I thought when... When touch chat came and when things got so technical, I thought we had the answer. I thought, oh, this is it. These people will be, you know, that are nonverbal and now have a means. Mm-hmm. And for many students, it is amazing. For some, the motor plan is different. Mm-hmm. When you're on a flat surface versus an angled surface, sometimes they need to be able to push through a, a stencil board or, or have things on it to, that's a tactile feedback so that they can actually be able to motor plan through something. Mm-hmm. It's for the same reason that we can't test children that are autistic so well because that whole pointing thing is just beyond them. Right. What we're seeing, you have to, I mean, I've literally tested some students by putting a Cheerio on the book because in order for them to be able to find it and be able to get to it, they have to have a reason to go there. So they'll pick the Cheerio up off the picture that matches what they're listening to, but they can't point. Mm. So I think, number one, you can't just put a board in front of them to go often because you have to go through a hierarchy of increasing complexity so that they can motor plan through 
and be able to actually find the letters. So one of the things that I'm sort of guessing at as you say that is that you can't you can't go for propositional speech out of the gate. You need to go for something that's sort of a closed set, which is hence why you need to do a lesson first. Mm-hmm. Take a lot of that pressure off of them. We're going to talk about fireflies. You know, are we talking about fireflies or are we talking about socks? Right. Um, a lot easier to enter a closed set, very factual. You're not asking their opinions. You're not mm-hmm. asking them if they want, if they feel cold, if they need a sweater. Right. Um, I'm onto something there. Does that sound? I, you you are, but a lot of times when we start with new students, um, you might ask something that either answer is correct. Oh, okay. So you're learning more about them. We're learning what they think about that. Well, you know, what do you think would be faster, a firefly or a bumblebee? You know, which one mm-hmm. do you think? There's not a wrong answer, but you're getting them choosing and they're mm-hmm. pointing. And I think what was surprising to me, I didn't expect to learn a hierarchy of how to get on a board mm-hmm. or how to get to, I mean, the ultimate goal is either self-holding the board or being on something electronic or writing mm-hmm. with no one there, mm-hmm. but you have to start somewhere and you have to get consistent responses. And sometimes yeah. that might be two written choices on two pieces of paper, or it might be yeah. two or three or four or five choices written on a page of paper, mm-hmm. Just but you're working on getting that motor plan going. And I think that's one of the big barriers. I think the other barrier is when you're having to take in the visual, the auditory, the kinesthetic, mm-hmm. even your body in space position, it's a lot to take in when you probably don't have a system that's that connected. Right. So you might be able to take one sense in or two at a time, but that's fatiguing. So if you go straight to, let's say, touch chat and they're having to visually figure out the pictures and then figure out the layers and figure out, well, what's that motor sequence? There's three barriers right there. Right. So then your thought, which may or may not be that great at staying put, by the time you've gotten through even one barrier, you, you've lost the thought. And at that point, the oh, discussion, uh, yeah. you know, and imagine that you're trying to say something and then you get off path. Let's say mm-hmm. your motor plan goes in a different direction and then your thoughts not even close to what you're thinking. And the mm-hmm. other person's gone with it because we're t- a lot of us are taught in floor time and in relationship-based therapy. So we go with it. We're going to go with that. (laughs) And and half the time, and that's what the other thing I learned is sometimes I was going with a thought that wasn't even, and that's why they were getting frustrated and spinning out of control. Right. (laughs) Because what came out was not even close. Not even close. And that happens, you know, the longer I've been working with kids on the spectrum, the more I've seen that where you can't always rely on their echolalia, when you, whether you want to call it stems or whatever, it's not always indicative of what they're actually thinking of or what they want to talk about or what's going on inside them. It's just what came out at the moment. Same thing. It's like where you're, if I said to them, you know, do you want, you know, do you want goldfish crackers or do you want watermelon? And they say watermelon, the last thing that came out. And even as they said it, they're like, no, that's not what I wanted. Not what they I... can't help it. It's, it's not, the, it's not easy. Um, if you can get a more direct line though, with, this very simplistic method, even at the base of paper choices, then you can start comparing their reactions. Just You almost have to be a detective and watching their body language, watching their eyes. Are their eyes on you now? Then they're probably saying what they intended and they're waiting for the next thing. Right. You're looking for these subtle body cues to show you, does their 
pointing or does their words match what they're what their body with the body showing you and then i think um, the third thing too a lot of these kids they have poor stamina for discomfort if you're trying to motor plan through something and it gets hard and you realize you've got a b and c to do your ability to stay with that mm-hmm. when all this sensory input's going on may not be that great so you're constantly cueing them to get back to it get back to it look get your eyes over here yeah you know bring that together i mean there's some kids that will peripherally spell but you want them bringing things together so that they're yeah and you know one of the things as you're saying that i was thinking about the countless numbers of videos that i've seen of kids who are you know obviously i don't know the, i don't know these people personally but the the, the ones who are using rpm successfully who are opening spelling who I want to make sure I'm putting this in a way that's people understand and that I'm actually, I guess what I'm saying is I'm, I'm amazed at how you have kids who've been doing RPM for X number of years. They're very proficient in it, but they still are struggling with their stims. Uh, I'm using that term stims, by the way, is because that's what Soma calls them uh, in her books. Um, she uses the word stims. Um, I don't use it in a derogatory fashion. She doesn't either, but I know some people, you know, so audience don't take it the wrong way. I'm just using the term that they use in the RPM nomenclature. But no, I guess what I'm saying is I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated that you have kids who can become proficient, but yet are still slaves to their, to their stims. So you can have a kid who can do academic grade level work by the next minute um, making a mess in the in the bathroom um, because they can't help they need to see the water flowing and now there's water all over the place or you know they're mm-hmm. they're creating some other some other type of um I don't want to keep referring to a mess but they they keep they keep circumlocuting around something an obsession of theirs and you still have to work to kind of bring them back. Because it's not as if RPM is a cure for autism. It's not a cure for autism. And I, I think... That's where I'm trying to get, you know... What, what you'll talk... There's many things that need to be worked on besides the communication. Right. So yeah. ex- exposure to as many different settings as they can and being able to control their body in those settings and gradually ease mm-hmm. into control. Yeah, so it like, you know... It has to be so frustrating, but that... Um, yeah, let's say the subject of my, of my first episode on... You know Benjamin's RPM journey. When I asked his mom, "What are you working on?" This is probably three years ago. At this point, and be, you know, because he was doing grade level work, so what are you working on? It was all functional skills. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all life skills. They're grooming, sequencing through putting your clothes on, things like that. I think what I've noticed is. When I do lessons, I learn about them. I learn about how they think. So for instance, this week, I learned that one of my students is really into history and was giving back all kinds of insightful information about history. My other student who I thought was interested in history, not so much, oh no, space, not so much and, and gave back kind of a snarky response, you know, like a total a teenage response. response. <laughs> um, I, we were talking about Apollo 
11 and we were talking about the conspiracy theory and okay. and if you could, you know, make a mission anywhere, where would you go? And yeah. he wrote, I would ride to his name's house. <laughs> okay. Like, I'm done with you. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm seeing, you know, I, okay, this guy has a sense of humor and he thinks yeah. it's funny and it's very dry and this guy's mm-hmm. very serious about. So I feel like it takes a long time, but if I can expose as if I have one simple, consistent way of responding, which it might be just two choices or four on a, on paper, mm-hmm. I can kind of get into their head a little bit. So if something's going on, I can say, okay, now this something's going on here, and I could give five choices or something else at the bottom. Yeah. And if it's one of those, they'll go through it. Or a lot of times it's something else, then I just have to start taking, you know, throwing things out. And eventually I can get down to, okay. So, well, you know, I say part of the process of RPM is it's if you're lucky enough to get to the open spelling part, they can start guiding you to what works and what doesn't. Well, and then like, those, stop giving me pictures of this. Yeah. I can't see them or, you know. Well, my guy yesterday, yeah. too, every time he would see this picture of the war, he would jump up and run out of the room. Oh, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then finally, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's every time he sees the war pictures. And then I went through choices and it was that it was too much. <laughs> like, it was too scary. Oh. And they were too bloody. Okay. But they were not that bloody. But yeah. it bothered him. So, but I think, too... Like you're talking about with Benjamin, if they're open spelling, then you can go back to those self-help mm-hmm. and you can set goals and say, you know what? You are not able to go into the public washrooms because you're doing this. We can't do this. How much time can you be in the public washroom without turning the water on? Yeah. We've got to start yeah. working on that now. What do you need support-wise to do that? Do you want me to be on the outside of the door or the inside of the door? You know, like... And you can work on it together. And then you yeah. work on it together, but they have a way of communicating why. Because if you yeah. can get to the why, yeah. why is this so hard? I mean, otherwise, I would have assumed this guy that was jumping up at the picture, I would have thought he was just messing around and mm-hmm. didn't want to focus. Mm-hmm. But it really was scaring him a little bit okay. but if you can get to the why then you can set up plans i believe yeah. better and they have some control over how long yeah because i think we our sense of how much is too long it might be different than theirs oh sure so yeah um i wanted to go back and talk about the motor control thing for a second because there are studies out there if, if the listeners want so you know i'll try to actually link to a few of these but um I've seen articles about the difficulties of testing kids with minimally to nonverbal autism and how eye gaze has been used as a better determiner of, of choice making. One of the, okay, so I still have, this is where I am going to be uh, persona non grata for both the um, RPM lovers and the RPM haters. I'm still so, sort of in the middle on this because I don't want to speak for someone. I don't want you to speak for someone either, but the implication that I have when you hear um, from RPM, even facilitated communication, is that they uh, is that autism is defined purely as a motor impairment, and that if we can get over the motor impairment, there's there's going to be average intelligence to above to superior. And you know, when I was in grad school, the model of autism 
and we and back then this is the mid 90s so when we talk about autism it was really just a day you know this is not a week this is literally just one day and we were showing a quadrant and this quadrant showed you know the one axis you had um, high functioning and low functioning the other axis you had verbal and nonverbal. Mm. the one group that i've never really seen are the quote-unquote nonverbal um high functioning and so there's a couple of things bundled up in this like number one where are those kids and of course the next thought is have we not identified them because we believe that their their bodies and their nonverbal show their intelligence which obviously i think rpm then has uncovered to be um a falsehood but isn't it possible that there are kids out there who whose iqs both verbal and nonverbal are well below 70 who are also nonverbal who we wouldn't know that we're giving them RPM, we'd just be wasting our time. Okay, I think I understand. Does that make sense? I think so. I truly believe that this paradigm can work with students wherever they are. So if a test, which I really don't think about IQ so much as I do information in, how can I get it in? But this paradigm can work for students that may not be cognitively as strong as others. It can work because you tailor your program for where they are, for where they're consistently responding. So I might alter my questions and I might alter the depth of the information I give to them to match where they are thinking. And then you just, you try to build that up. So I do, I don't think there are those kids that are high functioning nonverbal. And I think we have a lot of books written by them right now um, that would have been horrible if they'd never found RPM or a way to get their thoughts out there. Um, That might not be the majority of the of this population, but it definitely exists. And, but even if a child's IQ however that's defined, is lower, this will bring that up. It's a way of teaching and a way of helping them understand so that they are able to learn. So I I don't think it's wasting time. As long as you're bringing in everything that you can to help them understand, including pictures, maybe videos, doing some hands-on activities, and bringing it to their level, I don't see how that can be wasting time this is just a method for them to be able to respond to you right so i I think one of the things you're talking about is diagnostic therapy it's like diagnostic you know you're you know we getting back to my earlier point we really don't know what's going on inside so all we can do is try and see how far we can push this thing and now i feel like i have a tool and a method that I can simplify it down enough to get find some type of consistent responses. Mm-hmm. And then once I have that, then I can start phrasing things in a way mm-hmm. that they'll respond and then I get insight into who they are by how they respond to it. So, yeah, I, I think the one thing that I've um, sort of related to that I struggled with is like, so let's take it, uh, the, the case of, say, like an 18-year-old Say an 18-year-old uh, a male who's never had RPM, who's had 
variable success with AEC. You know, we've seen these kids who can request, but we're not really expanding on language. We're not using it for other functions. Maybe they're minimally verbal. They have a couple of key phrases they can say, like back off or no, or, you know, and then of course the verbal stems, but you know, they're not really communicating, communicating. And so you do your RPM and you say to yourself, okay, so this is, we have a 17 year old boy or 18 or whatever. Um, I'm going to go ahead and do, let's do a math lesson. Okay. So I'm going to go to calculus. <laughs> so yeah. I just want to, I, this is where I, this is where one of the things I'm, I'm, um, confused on. And so you're shaking your head. So I'm like, I'm guessing you wouldn't start a calculus. Well, I don't really understand calculus. So yeah. I kind of stick to what I wouldn't I know. be able to do anything so either. But. I stick to science and language. I would not start with calculus. I would, again, we have to think about we're working on getting consistent responses in the beginning. So they're going to be feeling a lot of anxiety around putting their thoughts out there on a board. They're going to be, or in making choices. So you're, you'll start simple, and it might be something more about themselves where there's no long, wrong answer. Um, you might then move into a lesson. And I've kind of changed my intake when I get a new student. And it's more open-ended learning about what the parents have noticed that they're interested in. Um, and I might pull some of the, the suggestions from the parents and give them choices of what maybe our next session, what our first lessons will be about. I'm going to go with what they are choosing that's their their interest level. I don't have to educate them. So it's I don't have to make them well-rounded necessarily. I'm really working more on communication. Most of the students I see tend to have people that are working on their academics with them to make sure they're meeting all the common core curriculum for whatever level, grade level they're working. So I can I have the luxury of choosing things that they're interested in to push their communication and to getting them more independent with their communication. So if calculus is their interest, I'm going to have to learn a little bit about calculus. If it's uh, learning about a famous singer or somebody that's more pop, then that's that'll be my focus to keep them communicating. And as they're getting more proficient at communicating, then I'll start pushing them a bit to go into other areas that maybe aren't high interest as high interest of an area. Let's switch topics. Topic. So, like, let's say, let's say they're in the eighth grade, and usually, I think in eighth grade here in the United States, kids are learning about the U.S. Constitution. They take the Constitution test. You have an eighth grader who's again brand spanking new, and mom's told you that you know, well, he tends to pick up books on uh, history and you know politics or whatever. And you're like, okay, you know, they're thinking, okay, so you give a question you, you let's say you're talking about the notion of amendments and you present questions and the students not getting the answer right do you then assume that they didn't know what do you do you then have to break it down and then test them that so like you know okay i'm not sure you understood what the word amendment meant mm-hmm. 
So then I'm, I'm going to say, you know, an amendment is a, you know, think about, okay, what's the most basic way? A change to the Constitution. Did I just say change or did I say blanket? I mean, is that what you're doing? Not really, not? because okay. that's more testing for information. Okay. So I'm not going to be so concerned about if he gets it right or not. I'm okay. going to be concerned about is is he responding with what he intended to or she intended to respond. But how do you so, know that? That's the that's one of well, the kickers. Like, how do you know that's if, what they intended? Well, when you do enough, you get the sense of when they are accurate. And typically, if they're accurate, they're back to your face pretty quickly. If that's mm-hmm. what they intended, they're back to you. If sometimes, if they what I've been experiencing with some of my students is if mm-hmm. they, if they're, not, if I'm not on the right track hearing what they intended, I lose them and they're gone. Okay. And it could be distractionary. And then I might bring them back and say, okay, let's start again. You mm-hmm. know, it looks like we got off track there. Let's start again. I was talking about this. And the difference in this therapy is I tended to down the language because I didn't want to overflow their sensory systems and you have kids holding their ears. It's the opposite. You give information, as much information as you can, and you're probably doing more of the talking and they're doing less of the responding. You know, like you're giving, giving, giving information, then you might pick one piece of information and say, well, what, you know, what do you think is, is, when we're talking about the Constitution, is the amendment yeah. something that stays exactly the same or is it something that changes? What did mm-hmm. you get from all that that I just said? And then if they pick, it stays the same. And it's like, well, you know, it stays the same in the Constitution if you don't have an amendment. But when you do an amendment, then that means that you need something new. It needs to change. Yeah. So what did you just learn in that? You know, is it the yeah. same or is it does it change? Well, it changes. So... I had to shift my thinking in that I'm not constantly checking, mm-hmm. I'm teaching. And I might go in a tangent. So if they get a little bored in this direction, mm-hmm. I have to scoot off in another direction and say, well, where are the, where are the places do we have to change rules? Like, what you know, what rules do you know change? Like, I was thinking about these rules that changed. Can you yeah. think of some rules that change? Or- so you're not, so that's a keep up uh, component I hadn't thought about before, that this idea about testing. Like over testing, so you don't. You definitely, in order to keep it conversational, I suppose you can. You can subtly do testing, but I like the way you just rephrase that question. What do you think it meant? Versus, did it mean? Does it mean X or does it mean Y? It's a different subtle wording, and I had to adjust to that. Yeah, because I find myself slipping back into it all the time into the old, well, I need to find out where the language is. I need to find out where their IQ is. I need to find out so I know how to map my next plan. But now, but when you do it more in the RPM scheme, you're really just having fun with language. You're having fun talking about things and finding out what this person thinks about a little, you know, Mm -hmm. about these topics. And you might become very tangential. Um, to go in, you know, different directions with it and yeah. they'll follow you. If you think about, if you could not get your mouth organized enough to say what you needed to say and you have a thought on something and this person that you're with is testing you, we've all had them, you know, teachers yeah. that were just on you. And <laughs> if you didn't get it right, they corrected you right away. And then, but if, you know, that's a different experience than when you're with someone that's just talking about something. 
and then going on a tangent with it and taking you with them. And then you're learning yeah. because you're on that tangent. Um, so you're going to be checking in with them to see if they're still following you. Yeah. And you might do, what do you think about this? Or, you know, if, if it looks like this, then what else do you know that looks like that? Now it's, it's so I asked you that, uh, so related point to that is because it's very conversational because you're trying to remove as much of that pressure as possible. You, you've mentioned to me before that you don't, um, you don't take data. You're not like writing down notes about whether you got something correct or incorrect. You're not putting little check marks or things like that during the, during the lesson. And I can sort of just hear the um, ABA therapist screaming in the as they're listening to this. Saying, Where's the data? How can you prove? I mean, do you? Is well, it more... I do a note each session. Yeah, but it's more narrative. And each session, the note may have some data in my, from my brain. Mm, <laughs> like you okay. know, I kind of think in. I don't know about you, but I think in base tens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so when you're doing something, you get kind of an idea of where they are. Yeah. So my notes tend to not be so base 10 data driven as yeah. they are what cues were needed. How did they respond to those cues? I videotape almost every session so that I can go back and look at it. So I'll have dates on the videos and I can go back and look and see. And a lot of times that's more telling than what my narrative note says, because mm. I can actually look at it. Um, and I have all those in a date, you know, in my possession. So I can always go back and look at them, but I, I find the videotaping helpful. This yeah. type of therapy is very hard to do. And at the same time, stop the flow to do to a write. tally. Yeah. Um, unless you, and a lot of times what some people do, and I don't have this benefit, but I know some people do have a second person in the room with them all the time, mm. and they're actually taking the some data. data on what's going yeah. on. Or they might be, as the student's spelling, writing down what the letters are to keep up with the letters mm. to make sure that it's it's accurate what they're saying and what the other person's getting. So, but yeah, go ahead. It's, it's very hard to take data, though, when you're in this type of lesson. Now, do you um, – so, yeah, so obviously you're not writing down 67% accurate. It's, it's all in your brain. It's more of a general notion. But I have a note that has it. Yeah. All, so I can go back to those and see where we were. And yeah, over time, I'm sure, just like you were saying before, you get a, a feel for the student and what they're interested in. Like, you know what? He didn't seem to do as well on this topic. Maybe he likes this subject more than that subject. And I I'm going to ask them because now I have it. I yeah. say, you know, what – what do you, would you rather do something on history or art today? Would you rather do something? I steer away from calculus because I don't know it, but um, I <laughs> try to pick to things. And I have had to study up on things that I, they've asked me to, like, I want to yeah. do, like one guy spelled research. So he wanted some research about the brain. Okay. So it was, he spelled research and brain. So then I would bring something in about that. You know, the other thing is if you have kids, I mean, one of the things I've, I've always thought about RPM as well is don't you just get kids who just don't like being in school and would actually rather not sit and do any lesson at all? <laughs> it's be like, you know, you're trying to teach me. I'm out of here. I mean, I would. It's interesting, though. I found most of the nonverbal students that I'm working with with a diagnosis, <clears throat> excuse me, of autism tend to be very academic. Um 
once I find the academics that they're interested in, you start to see that new love of learning. I think overall, we as humans do want to learn and grow, and it's not different in this population. It's a matter of finding what that topic is and what the subject matter is that is of interest to them. And if you can find that, then you do have a student that's engaged in in new learning. And I also feel that because RPM puts such a value on presuming that they understand and, and building that relationship of, I trust that you know this, I trust that you can do this, and I'm, I'm here with you to keep that going, then you end up with a student that's in, that's all in. And of course, that's, that will go up and down, just as it does with any student. But overall, my experience has been students that do have a love of learning again and a love of being in this conversation. We're going to miss some things in our talk, and that's okay. We can always, like I said, we can do a round two at some point or whatever, or just answer people's questions as they come up. But okay, so another another one is when I did the RPM episode about Benjamin, the number one question that I got was, um, and when people are listening to this, and they're like, okay, if you can get into open communication, um, and they're able to do this on a letter board, why couldn't they just transition that that knowledge, that motor plan to an iPad, to a text-to-speech thing. What's the holdup? Well, that's the goal. I think it's the motor planning and it's the sensory integration part of motor planning, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. being able to take it all in and change that plan. So why are they saying the same thing over and over on the iPad? Because Mm -hmm. that motor plan is activated pretty easily. Mm-hmm. So it's we say the same thing. To free formulate, you have to have flexibility to go everywhere. So sometimes it takes the board to be upright. And then once you get the board flat and they're going on that, then you can start moving toward a flat system. Mm-hmm. So I have one guy now that he's pretty accurate on the board vertically, and I have the iPad vertical so he might, if he goes straight to the board to spell, he can't find the letters. But if, not the board, if he goes straight the, to the iPad, yeah. he's not consistent with the letters. He's still working on being able to to do it on the iPad. Okay. But if he spells it, he'll go letter by letter, spell on the board, go to the iPad, spell on the board, go to the iPad. So Got he's it. at that point. Now, eventually, I'll start fading I'll get him started with the word and just fade it away to where he finishes it on the iPad. And so and on the iPad, is there, is there, is there a, per, a preferred uh, app that you're using for that text? Is it? You know, most of them come to me with something, so I'm not going to change Oh, it's whatever that. they have. It's what they have. I got it. Um, so you could even use, I mean, because the thing is, most AAC apps have a QWERTY page. You can even just use that as sort of like a text-to-speech. And I've seen... That's what... That's yeah. What. And I've seen kids do that, whether you're a Lamport for Life mm-hmm. chat, what have you. an iPad and we've we've talked a lot about just the iPad itself um, but I, I think again we, we just take for granted how easy it is for us to be able to switch systems and we see a QWERTY on one system 
raised a little bit when a different lights, mm-hmm. how, how the slightest little change, pressure of a key versus or pressure on the screen, the way you're, we take it for granted. And I, I do believe it is, it is hard for some of our students to make that transition as easy as we can. We don't think about it. Um, but, uh, well, but, I mean, I have students that if, if I change one thing in the room, we may have an off day. If it's not, and, and I'll think, oh, I turn the chair a different way. And, mm-hmm. and I will sometimes ask them what's going on, you know, and I'd give, this guy's not open com- completely spelling with me. So yeah. I would give choices and it turned out, he didn't. I had a new intern. He he was used to her, but she was sitting behind him. He didn't like facing opposite somebody behind him. That yeah. bothered him. Like yeah. he couldn't focus on this when that was going on. So uh, once yeah. we got that rectified, it the next time. time it was different. And it's hard to to know exactly everything that's different. But I think with the boards, I didn't realize such subtle changes would make. I didn't get it until. I yeah. started working. So you saw it for yourself. I saw it yeah. for myself. So sometimes yeah. even my guys that are on a letter board, I might mm-hmm. have to go back to a cutout if the topic's more challenging. Oh, that's because yeah. it's like to the more familiar to the more familiar. You have to balance it out. You know, I, I think that also it, it kind of speaks out to the to the perils of trying even to to construct a, a testing environment to do research on RPM. Because the minute you say, it's like, okay, well, you know, let's cart the IPM therapist and the student into our research facility, into our lab at Namur University. And boom, that's the first, you know, right there, you can have the student, he could have slept very well, have the uh, therapist with him. Now you're in a new room and maybe the fan's blowing. It's a little colder than they expected. And you're not used to that research. And what's this guy doing over there? And that fluorescent light's on. And... Again, same thing as before. We take it for granted. I can walk into that environment. I deal with it. Well, you and I automatically encode it. We don't. I don't even think Based about when I go in and walk walk into a room that I won't bump into the chair. But if your sensory system's not processing information quickly and online, then you kind of have to cognitively think it through and look it through. Or you might have to scan the room a few times, mm-hmm. walk the room, walk the perimeter, check it out, make sure everything's the same, and then sit down. Yeah. But I think that's stuff that we need more research to understand. And, right. and even with motor planning, I'm not sure it's a motor planning like we learned about Broca's aphasia and mm-hmm. with neurology. I think it has to do, you know, it could be a sensory apraxia where if you can't tell where your body is in space, those memories aren't made. And mm-hmm. then you can't plan it out, or is it that different areas of the brain can't talk to each other consistently? Mm-hmm. So if they're not, then every situation's a new situation. Yeah, because and you it, can't pull from memory. You can't, right. and it's a lot to then. It's a lot going up. Yeah, and it's it's it's, it's taking some of your processing power away from the task at hand, and mm-hmm. you're now you're just fidgeting and thinking about this new environment. Um, I, so, did that answer the question? Though, it did. I, I just think that I, I think that um, there's so much. I think there's a lot of very. And, and again, I want to back up and I say I think all the questions that skeptics have about RPM they're very valid, but you have to give some credence to the the challenges that kids with autism are having and the fact that we really 
are at the tip of the iceberg right now, I think, in history uh, we are, of understanding. It's a very exciting time because we're at the tip of the iceberg to me. I think there's a lot that we're going to learn through this, and it's, yeah. it's, it will change how yeah how we're able to treat that. I mean, and I struggle every day switching to this paradigm of not testing and, and mm-hmm. assuming that they understand everything and getting – you know, going back and forth between different types of boards and angles. And, you mm-hmm. know, it's a lot, it's a different way of learning. But because when I am in that place of not testing, thinking about how they're processing things, the things that they're able to do is much more than I ever got before. Mm-hmm. And it's a different way to do it. The, the, the the stems are down. The reactivity is down. Mm-hmm. The moving about the room is down. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the better I get, the less they do. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. not focused on the lesson. Mm-hmm. But it's harder. Like you have to come prepared with a lesson and with ideas, and mm-hmm. and I've also learned that each lesson you don't need, but maybe four points of information. For each lesson, because mm-hmm. you're going to go off on those little tangents. Because you're going to go on tangents. You're going to have them do it several different ways. Mm-hmm. You might do some almost like a spelling test where they're mm-hmm. working on motor p- control through spelling. Yeah. But I might say to them, I know you know how to spell this word. I know it's in your head, but I, ne- I need you to practice showing me that and, get, and being consistent. So we're, we'll do five of these. So right. you can see... Because then they know I'm not testing how smart you are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have a few guys that I think being smart is their thing. I want I wanted to go back a little bit more into this whole idea of of using iPads as communication devices. You know, you talked about before when when these things first came very popular. iPad was invented in 2010, Mm. and then of course the the iPad apps start coming out, and many are. And it are, the thing is, like, I think one point that I would probably disagree, um, you know, like many interventions, you know, who's RPM for? The proponents would say everybody. And I would, and obviously there are kids. I mean, they're, they're somewhat, um, I don't think there are that many of them, but you do see there are kids who do fine. They've learned to um, manage those mainstream apps and they do communicate they are they have achieved some level of spontaneous novel out of this generation so it, it is possible that they can do that but i was always struck by um the again going back to the benjamin episode the father saying and, and i don't know if this meant i don't know if this made it to the actual episode but i asked him i go um he had touch chat why didn't it work and his answer was because benjamin doesn't think in pictures he thinks in words since so i think i think that was I think that was part of the answer. It's almost like you're slowing him down, the process down by giving him this layout in this way. And again, I don't want to, people are going to say, um, actually, can I go off on a tangent real quick? I think people think, I, I received an email actually about a week or so ago. I've had this a couple, actually a, a couple of these emails where people think that I'm now, I'll have a guest on and they'll think I'm no longer doing other therapies and I'm still very eclectic in what I do. So um, do I still use core vocabulary? Yes, I do. Do I still use touch channel lamp? Yes, I do. As are you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but um, I, I haven't and, and can, do I, is iconicity matter? And do I do, am I invested in teaching motor planning as well as 
Uh, the meaning of icons, yes. I think that every student is an island unto themselves. Autism is a very heterogeneous population. No one size fits all. But I have not abandoned <laughs> other things that I have learned. I'm adding to the pot. So that's what I would say about that. But let's go back to this idea about iPads. One of the things that we had kind of talked about, I've, I've hypothesized that for some kids, high tech seems like the natural slam dunk. You have a non, non-speaking individual with autism and you have a choice between low tech and high tech. Why wouldn't you go with high tech? You have more, much more bang for your buck. You've got portability. You can carry the fringe and the core. Um, there's the coolness. The, you got a screen there. Toddlers love screens. <laughs> What's not to love? <laughs> but not everybody's ready for that. And I just wanted you to kind of just comment on where you think we are with the whole AC. And and again, why it is, forget even RPM for a second, why it is that an iPad might actually not be a good fit at first. The thing, I find it harder to reason using an iPad like reasoning in a conversation, I feel it slows things down. But that said, I have two or three students that are highly proficient on formulating on the iPad. And well, and that's where we go with it. Like Mm -hmm. I would not take that student and say, oh no, oh no, no, you need to do RPM. (laughs) No, you're forming full questions and sentences using the icons. And they think in pictures. They do. Yeah. You know, the reading has come for them, I think, because of the pictures and the icons that led them to reading. So they can mm-hmm. do more just reading and spelling, mm-hmm. spelling, not so much, but whole, more whole word. Um, so those guys that are more whole word, mm-hmm. they've learned by the configuration. They like pictures. They're drawn to the pictures on the mm-hmm. iPad. They're not drawn to the words. Mm-hmm. Or if they see a picture, they're drawn to the picture the writing on the back, there's no reason to do RPM because they're doing it fine conceptually using concepts and building those concepts into grammar structures and those grammar structures into stories and responding, asking questions. It works. So in that case, I think it works really well. Mm -hmm. I think when you add sensory processing issues into the mix, it may be a slam dunk and it may not, depending on where they are in the processing. Mm-hmm. If their processing is unable to take a picture and put it together and retain it mm-hmm. as an image, that letters are going to be easier because it's 26 level letters, always the same with infinite possibility. But if they don't have, if, if they really do think in pictures, they're not going to get a lot of meaning from the letters. But if you've applied meaning and memory to letters and words, then the 26 works for you. That It can go either way is what you're saying. It and can it's go some, either way. Yeah. And, you know, with those kids that are more visual, you're going to bring in the icons and you, you might bring in signing and you might bring in hands-on activities so that they can... Mm-hmm. do things they may learn more that way mm-hmm. and then bring the pictures to it but i think if we're going to test i think we need to start looking at how are they getting information in mm-hmm. are they visual like maybe you do a test where you show pictures letters words and then go through several exercises to find out well how are they thinking about things yeah you know if i say the word cat and I have a picture of a cat and then the word cat, which one do they go to first? 
if they go to CAT, they probably they they're thinking more in words. Yeah, that actually brings up a one of the things that I've always. I forgot how you responded to this, but I said to you once, if you have kids who are hyperlaxic, wouldn't those be the kids who be the more ideal candidate for RPM? I think that's probably the case. I think you can probably have hyperlexia and think more in pictures. You can have both. I think you might be able to have both. So you'd have to play around with it some. Mm -hmm. But to me, it seems those kids that at two were already, they were breaking the code of language by putting words together with letters. Okay. So maybe processing and hearing words didn't have as much meaning to them until they could see it in letter form. And then once once they saw it in word form, they're like, oh, yeah, I've got mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, and I see that with some kids that are verbal that look like auditory processing kids. I've actually used kind of an RPM approach where I might have phrases written out and they would have to choose. And then I could take the phrases away. I could literally oh. just leave the strips of paper. Yeah. And they could re- their memory was so good that they would go, "Oh yeah, I need to say this." And yeah, it was yeah. in this case I was teaching kind of pragmatic language, like what would you do mm-hmm. if you needed to know this information? What's a question you would ask? Yeah. Uh, what could you ask? So I think probably those kids it could be children that have processing issues that, but they understand the letters and they're starting to go in that mm-hmm. way. Um or they've broken the code of language through the letters and they are the hyperlexic kids that read early and, and they went through. Mm-hmm. So they know all the words. Now we just have to build their world a little broader with some pictures and some images and yeah. what episodes have happened. And, you know, I, I think I have all sorts of sort of wild ideas about, again, get us back to this idea of modeling what's going on inside their head. I often think... It makes this idea, the de- definition of intelligence quite malleable, in my opinion. So, you know, what is intelligence? Because it, I, I think it's almost like beside the point to ask about what is their sort of static intelligence. I think it's sort of like a moving target. And it's sort of like not, not really is like what is their intelligence, but what are they capable of given the right inputs? You know, it'd be quite easy to say, well, they didn't respond to... You know, what is, I asked them to point to a picture naming task and they couldn't point to what is cat. But again, because I, I think for many of the kids, they live such a, like a fragmented experience where they just can't integrate sight sense, other senses. And, you know, I, I'm actually, let me give you a, a quick example of what I'm talking about. I did a little quasi experiment last year with one of my students. Um, I have to be careful. I don't want someone, another, I've had this at least a couple of listeners have, warned me about said you know not in a mean way just say you might want to be careful about how you talk about okay so but i you know I, i'm gonna be very general here because i don't think this could describe any number of my students but okay let's take a um, young man he, when he walks into a room kind of a very generalized visual attention kind of just wanders and i suspected with this boy i'm like i really feel like he didn't have a good sense of boundaries where the room began, where the room ended. And he had come into this, into the room, the speech room and any number of times. And we always kind of went back to this corner. And the thing is in, in my, in our speech room that I share with OT and, and PT, we have a, a room divider, one of those accordion style. We can, so we can configure the room in sort of different ways. 
So I would, I would usually have this young man over in one corner of the room. And one day I just, I, I decided to sort of really enclose off our space so that there was no way to get out. Cause what he, what this, what this young man would do is he was tending to wander. That we kind of could not stay in one spot. I allowed him to stand, you know, during our, our quote unquote sessions. Um, and he, and he paced a lot, and sometimes he would kind of walk out of the area that we were in. So I wanted to say, I'm like, I'll bet you if I totally enclose a space, I wonder if he can get out. So I totally enclose a space, and guess what? He couldn't leave. He couldn't leave. He would walk back and forth and slam his hands against the, the divider. Not, not like I want to get out, but just sort of like couldn't under, didn't know what to do with himself. So you had so if you can picture, um, sort of like three walls of the divider and then a window you can look outside on, and sort of like this long shelf. Okay, so he's against the, the the shelf, the long shelf, and then windows that you can look outside of, but you can't get out three walls. And I just found it fascinating that he that he couldn't figure out. So I'm thinking, okay, if this is a challenge, what is it like for him to look at any number of things? What's it like for you know what is what is he saying when he looks at a low tech board, a high tech board? Is he able to? Is he glomming onto a particular aspect of it, the redness of it? Is he particular? You know, is he mm-hmm. looking at shadows? Is he looking? You know, what does iconicity mean at all? And obviously, this is where the modern planning becomes important. But um, tangent, I know, but it's just it's interesting. To well, talk he about sounds these like challenges. he was more of a global. Learner. I would say, so a, he- a, yeah. So you know. To back up, uh, for those of you who haven't read Soma's work, she talks about in her in her books um, different learners, you know, kinesthetic, global. I'm still wrestling with those terms in terms of trying to process what they mean. And um, but as you as you read the descriptions, you can think of specific students mm-hmm. you have. You're like, oh yeah, that's so and so, and it does kind of make sense. It makes sense, and it it makes you wonder what what they're actually seeing and the whole depth perception mm-hmm. I think is huge because yeah. if you can't judge how far something is from you, you probably will go around the room and touch everything because you'll, you can't tell visually, but if I touch it and I know I took several steps to get there and then I go this way and then I go that way, then you have a better pattern of the room. Yeah. But I notice sometimes when I'm watching videos of people that are more global just by putting a chair in between you and that person and then another chair on the other side of the room, it, it gives them boundaries enough that they can feel safe enough that they don't need to pace to figure out what the room is. And it works. Like that type That's of stuff does work. And you're, not, you're never – you don't want to touch a child. But if you can yeah. make the room where it's comfortable for them and it makes something for them to go around – Mm-hmm. They may choose to stay there. And yeah. I did have one student spell to me, I can't make sense out of it, of this picture, because the the colors won't stay set. They're flowing. So for him to look at a picture that's very bright in color would not be effective, but mm-hmm. he did better with just very simple So um, it was very fatiguing for his eyes. And I don't know that they have tests for that yet of... How to? A lot of research to be done. But it also goes up and down. I might have somebody openly spelling, and then we'll have two or three. Like I only meet typically once or twice a week, but we might have Mm -hmm. a couple weeks where things are just off. 
and it just the body can't get together and then they're back um i wanted you to tell me more about how you integrate uh prompt into rpm (laughs) i'm having a lot of fun with that right now actually (laughs) um is it is it as simple as they come up with a response and you say okay let's let's motor plan this out and let's see if we can practice saying this I do several levels like during one session I might do multiple things with prompt um, you're working on motor control but I'm working on motor control based on the hierarchy so the hierarchy the, of, prompt. of prompt so, so jaw stability lab- labiofacial mm-hmm. yeah, okay so I might say we're going to do big jaw movements right now. Show me the big jaw position. And I've prompted this and I've given them jaw support to know that this yeah. is big jaw. It's, it's open. It's ah, ah, mm-hmm. ah. Those are the sounds that go with it. Mm-hmm. And then I have like a high jaw. I call it the smiling e, position. Yeah. And that's, I want them to be able to get in those postures and round lip positions and so I might work on that for a while, and then we build vowels, and we build words around the vowels. So that's sort that's of separate thing. from RPM then? I mean... That would be separate from yeah. RPM. Okay. But we might build it in then. Once they get those ideas, we might say, okay, here, you know, that's a vowel. That's a big jaw vowel. What mm-hmm. words can you think of that have a big jaw a big jaw when you're making it? Mm-hmm. And, and they would use their board to spell, to spell those words. And then practicing it? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then... If they can't spell it, I might have words written out, and they would choose that word, and then we would spell it, and then we would say it, and then okay. it becomes very multisensory. Yeah. Um, and I've also been playing a little bit with telepractice with a couple of kids that aren't in the area and building programs for them, mm. and that's been a lot of fun. But it's like a they already are pretty proficient at RPM, but now we're building – these ideas of the big jaw, you know, okay. round lips, but I do it. It's a very language heavy. So it's so obviously because it's it. not a direct prompt. You're really showing them visually through telepractice, what your lips are doing and you're, and you're using language to, as a mediation. Like here's right. what my lips are doing when I do this. Mm-hmm. Here's what my tongue is doing when I say, okay. Right. And I might meet with the parents once in a while to just do, teach them parameter prompts, the large yeah, the prompts, large, yeah. um, but then not do anything specific, but then I'm prompting on me. And if they're looking, they can usually mm-hmm. make that association. Right. But e- each session is a, mm-hmm. is a lesson though of, we might go back and forth t- with between different vowels and, mm-hmm. and then paired contrast that they're saying. And then I always have them answer a question after it between those two words. So if I do mm-hmm. a paired contrast, I'd say, well, you know, ask a question. One of the words is the choice. And then they, they would verbally say the word. Okay. Or they might be spelling it and then verbally saying it. Yeah. And obviously some kids, um, you have to build their tolerance for prompt because not everybody likes to be touched. Right. So <laughs> I found that myself using prompts on kids uh, with ASD is that they have various levels of uh, acceptance. Uh huh. You know, and um, yeah. Yeah. So it's like sometimes it goes well, sometimes, you know, you have, it, you have good days and bad days like with all kids, you know, it just just goes. Uh, but I also teach them to prompt themselves. So if we're doing big jaw, I will take their hand and mm-hmm. teach them how to do that one, and I'll teach them how to do this one and this one. <laughs> 
<laughs> and they will prompt themselves when they get stuck a lot of times. It reminds me of a student I have who does that. Um, who's like, you know, oh, get your hands off me. I'll do this myself. And then, of course, overshooting the target. You know, something becomes an over-exaggerated. Yeah. <laughs> no. But they're in control. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Last time we tried this, we talked about um, critics I've come in, in contact with. Uh, one individual who I obviously won't name the person, very much anti-RPM, thinks all the communication is manufactured and talks about lives ruined. You know, the one thing I've thought about in terms of this idea about lives ruined and a lot of the lives ruined, again, people make this um, the analogy between FC, so facilitated communication and RPM. So the idea is that if you can, if you buy that FC is bogus and RPM is just remanufactured or repackaged as FC, then, well, there's nothing to look at here. Um, but I think that uh, one of the, the toughest things to, to sort of quantify is that for researchers, I would sort of throw this out at people. How many anecdotes of Life, quote unquote lives ruined can you can you name when it comes to rpm okay so i'll put that out there define what you mean by lives ruined what ways were their lives ruined and i think you know again i don't want to speak for this person but i think what what um this person is saying is that simply that there was an opportunity cost that x number of years were spent on a system that did nothing for him Whereas if we had just continued with evidence-based practice, we could have gotten much further. Um, I think there's a bit of a sleight of hand there. Again, I mean, you can we can have that argument over all day over which intervention was better, but I'm a little it's a it's a little concerning when you talk about a life ruined in terms of an opportunity cost. Life ruined. I mean, if you want to talk about false cases of sexual abuse, that's a different beast. But I guess the question is, you know, if, if we want to put our research hats on and be scientific about it, someone ought to go out, go out there and say, okay, it, I don't know how you would do this, but how many kids have been exposed to RPM around the world? What percentage of those kids have been involved in false accusations of abuse? Um, I mean, I think people, I mean, obviously, you the listener, you know what I'm talking about here. I mean, for anyone familiar with this topic, you know where I'm going with this. And I think that, you know, like a lot of things in life, there's a lot of hubris and a lot of exaggeration. And we want to make our points. And I understand the concerns about RPM. I'm not talking about FC right now, but I'm talking about RPM. I understand the the concerns. But again, you, you're going to have to come out with me with more data than just um, hearsay and stories about lives ruined. Whose lives are ruined? What do you? How do you define lives ruins? How many are we talking about? That's that's sort of my starting point of it. I don't know if you want to add to that. I do because, um, I mean, I get worrying about oh, we're not working on those cognitive substrates and building up from the bottom up, and we're missing out. But on the flip side of that, I'm seeing families are now empowered. Mm-hmm. I see mothers in tears because for the first time they feel like they're getting to know their child. They mm-hmm. actually know what they want to eat now. Um, 
they're empowered because they're doing it every day. Mm-hmm. It's a simple enough paradigm that they're able to communicate with their child pretty soon and problem solve. Well, what can I do? Maybe AAC is better with the technology, but we have not done a very good job in helping parents know how to implement it. And mm-hmm. they don't. It goes home. It sits on their shelf. They might plug it in to, to charge it, and then it comes back the next day not touched. Mm-hmm. So unless the system is one that can be incorporated and simple enough for parents to use, it's not going to be effective. Yeah. I don't know that getting to know your child to the point of tears would ever cause that child any harm except for more understanding Mm -hmm. by the parents. I don't think, and I know the presumed competency, oh, you're not, you know, you're living in a world of disbelief. You're not accepting reality. The reality is I would rather do harm in assuming they know more than sticking them like we did with hearing impaired students many, many, many years ago in a classroom where they were with students that didn't understand and they were fully cognitively aware and able. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with presuming that they understand speaking to them as the age that they are. Mm -hmm. And then if I need to simplify things, I will, as I go along, once I get a communication system. So I, I can't see where I'm doing harm. I think I would be doing harm and I'd be remiss after what I saw with my two students and not pursuing and, and getting to know more about this. Right. And I think this brings up this whole thing about the whole EBP thing. I am all for evidence-based practice. I know you are as well. And I think this is one of those tricky things because it's sort of like if something's sort of cutting edge, but hasn't been vetted by research yet, what do you do with that? Well, I think you first asked that question is what harm can it cause and again, this is where the people, the the anti-RPM crowd would say, well, again, there are cases. Okay, and, this, and I'm going back to my point earlier. Show me those cases. Let's put it in the, in, the, in the correct context. How many are we talking about have done RPM? And what do you mean by harm? The opportunity cost alone is not harm, in my opinion. But I think also, you know, if we're being very honest with our parents, you know, with whom we're doing RPM with, and we tell them, you should know about this controversy before you pursue this. I think, again, there's that third leg of the EBP triangle that patients and families values and perspectives that often gets cut out of the conversation when it comes to EBP. So yeah, level one research is really important and it's really important to, and I, I think you would love to see RPM get studied. It's not like, you know, you want this to be, out in front and center. You want people to get behind this and, and try and see, discover more about the brain and what's going on uh, during an RPM lesson. You know, I, I, um, I think a good place to kind of, uh, kind of close our conversation is uh, talk about the ASHA stance, their position statement, which now it is, um, is today, April or we're still in March, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Last day of March, I think. Um, one year ago, this coming June, well, I, that, when they put out the questionnaire, I want to say it was around June, I think August maybe is when the position statement went live. I could be wrong. So for those of you who don't know, ASHA released a position statement on rapid prompting method and spoiler alert, uh, they don't recommend it. Now, if you were part of the, um, 
there was an initial comment period. So RPM talked about an ad hoc committee that was getting together to make the position statement and they want feedback from its members um, on what they what they thought about. And you had reached out, Ashley, you had converse, phone conversation, you had sent videos in. And I don't think this is breaching any type of uh, confidentiality, but um, you had told me that Ashley was actually pretty receptive to what you had. Um, it wasn't as if they poo-pooed your, your work. I, I had a long conversation with a member of the committee and afterwards and during, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. because I wanted to get information to them. Um, the feedback I got from the videos I sent personally was that I was using it in a way that was ethical, like that it was not, it would not be considered unethical and be a violation of my code of ethics. Right. Um, I, as far as the committee goes, I hope they looked at all the videos. I hope that they took all the information in. I hope they looked at it objectively. Yeah. Um, the stuff that was sent to them by me, I can't imagine they wouldn't look at it and go, yeah, there's something, you know, that's, that's definitely a teaching (laughs) method. Um, but to me, as long as I'm not breaching a code of ethics with, you know, with learning, as long as my parents know that this Mm -hmm. is the position statement, typically they come to me because they have been through everything and they've not found anything that worked yet. Um, so once they get to me, they have researched, they've found RPM and they're choosing me because of that. But as, but I do tell them up front, you know, this is not sanctioned mm-hmm. by the National Convention. I mean, ASHA. Yeah. But I see progress and I feel like I need to play it out in yeah. my practice to, to see how I use it and how it's working and for which children it works best with. And and get to where we can understand sensory processing better and understand so we can help more quickly. (laughs) But if we listen, these students are going to teach us. And if we can give it time and if we can just believe in their competency, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, the the kids that are putting things on blogs now are typing on a keyboard. So I don't, with no one touching them. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how they're being swayed. Mm-hmm. Maybe their environment has taught them certain things and they believe certain things. But as far as putting words into their mouths, I don't think yeah. in most cases it's happening. But um, right. I, I need to see it played out and hopefully. Yeah, I, I want to say um, to the point of you know putting words in their mouths, I, I do see the possibility for, I'm not, I'm not going to use the word abuse. I do see the possibility of misusing a board. I think you can, I can easily see a, a scenario, picture scenario where someone who learned RPM secondhand, thirdhand, watching YouTube videos, inappropriately moving the board. And I can't remember if it was you or someone else telling me like they've actually seen these videos and they're like, oh no, they're doing it wrong. Yes. And, you know, someone who's done it for a while, who's actually trained and, you know, so it's, I can, yeah, is it possible to, to abuse someone or to abuse the trust or to abuse the, in terms of the competency and, you know, cross that line. Absolutely. But is that what's going on in the majority of cases uh, with competent therapists who are faithfully and with fidelity executing, you know, this method? Now my guess is no, until someone can prove otherwise, I think that 
It's a teaching method. It's going to work with some kids probably better than others. Does every kid reach um, open spelling with RPM? Probably not. Um, you know, a lot, there's a lot of open questions for me. So do I fully um, invest myself in RPM and say, I think we found the answer? No. Do I think RPM can help a lot of kids? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, that's why I got, I guess I, to, to finish off, I, I really see myself as someone who now sees the communication of a lot of these kids as, yes, valid. I've crossed that threshold. I don't question that anymore. Is it for everyone? No. I, I look at it just, I shrug my shoulders still. So like, I don't understand everything I'm saying here. I need to learn more. Yeah, same. You know? And I, I do think, just be aware that when you go on YouTube and it's called an RPM lesson, not everyone that calls it an RPM lesson has been trained in RPM. <laughs> It's like anything else so, on the internet. You have to take everything you see with a grain of salt. Especially on YouTube. But there are sites, and you'll probably put them at the end, I think you were talking about. But there are yeah. sites if you want to see a true RPM session that you can go to, and it will be... Yeah, I'll link to a couple of those if, if you want to see it done. Um, you know, Again, I'm not the authority on this, but from, from where I'm sitting, if you want to see it done with as much fidelity and where I would put my money, I'll, I'll link to a couple of those sites and uh, go from there. Any last words? Any last words? <laughs> we can always um, put stuff. No, I think just have an open mind and sometimes things that are new take time to evolve and yeah. give this a chance to evolve. Yeah, definitely. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. First off, my thanks to Maria for taking the time to record two rounds of what was a challenging conversation to have. Um, obviously not between um, the two of us, but just keeping in mind the larger audience that is eventually going to hear this. Okay, one quick correction. We were talking about the ASHA position on RPM. And uh, Maria made reference to talking to a committee member uh, during the comment period uh, that had opened up in the summer of 2018. Now that actually, she didn't actually speak to a committee member. She talked to a liaison to the committee. So just take note of that. Now I have to put a warning out there for all potential critics and trollers. Please don't shame us. If you want to criticize this conversation, I just ask that you do so in a respectful manner. We're not going to bother to respond to pure vitriol, even if you do think it's morally justified. But if you do want to get a hold of me personally about this episode or any other, you can do so. Jeff at conversationsinspeech.com. Okay, just a few more closing thoughts. Go back to what I asked you to do in the intro. Watch that video of Ito. Did you? If you did, what did you think of it? Is Ito communicating or is it his mother? Now, I've read two of Soma's books on RPM, and I think she's onto something. But even as there's so much to admire about her work, she does make assertions that do come off as too simplified, especially when it comes to brain functioning. If RPM eventually becomes studied, and one day supported by research, I'm going to guess that like every other therapy, they're going to find out that it's not for everyone. I can keep going on and on about the promises and limitations of RPM forever. Skeptics continue being skeptical. We all need to promote good science in the end. But, and this is a big but, 
If you want to get me to shut up about RPM, you need to show me the magic trick. The sleight of hand that I'm just not seeing. Actually, I think I've seen this sleight of hand a few times. You see, this is what makes this such a complicated subject. It's not binary. It's not black and white. So, as first assignments to you skeptics, what is Ito's trick in that video? And please, don't come at me with this idiomotor effect. To me, the idiomotor effect is a plausible notion, but you have to show me exactly where in the video it's occurring. Break it down frame by frame. Show me where something is being moved, where he's being elbowed. Show me the subtle glance, the furtive move of a board. Okay, maybe, maybe in the end you'll say, well, we can't show you that because of the way the camera's set up. Okay, tell me that. Fine, we'll just have a stalemate. Of course, I'm already hearing in my head, yeah, Jeff, but that's just one student. And maybe he learned to type in spite of, not because of RPM. All right, if this is where you stand, I'd come back with, so we agree that Ito is communicating. Okay, I'll start with that. Let me end with a few more questions for you to ponder. Can you know with 100% certainty that RPM is a sham in every single case? Could it be that perhaps it is a sham when inappropriately used and useful in other cases? Can you think of a reason that RPM should not be studied at all? Are you aware of research? Yes, research demonstrating the difficulties of autistic individuals getting their bodies to cooperate with their brains? Check out some of the links in the show notes. Tell me what you think of them. Okay, I'll shut up for now. See you next time.